I'd like to take a few moments and preach on some things we can learn about prayer if we were to go to the garden with the Lord Jesus. Mark chapter 14, I'd like to begin reading at verse number 32, and then we'll read down to verse number 42 and pray. The Word of God says they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. And saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping, saith to Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldst not thou watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him. And he cometh the third time, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. It is enough, the hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the privilege to be in your house tonight. Now, I pray you'd take your word, that you would, uh, your spirit would wield it as his sword. Lord, we know it is his proper instrument and tool for the effectual working in our lives, and we just pray you'd help us to have our hearts open to the truth of it tonight, that we might be drawn closer unto you and that you might gain more glory out of our lives. Help us to walk in accordance with what's said to us this evening. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to give you a few principles that we find prevalent in the garden scene. And if you want a title for the message, I've titled it The Garden Path of Prayer. This was a place that the Lord Jesus often took His disciples to pray. In fact, Luke's account says that He was wont to go to the Mount of Olives. And it reminds me of this tonight. Number one, that prayer has a place. It has a place. In other words, there are places we go to do certain things. No doubt you have a laundry room in your house or maybe a uh, closet. I remember the first little house that we lived in had the laundry closet in the kitchen. I don't know whose bright idea it was to put the laundry closet in the kitchen, but for a short time in human history, wisdom and logic failed mankind, and they thought, I'll tell you where people want their dirty drawers, they want it next to the dinner table. So we had that laundry closet there in the kitchen. Man, I always hated that. Kept you on your toes as far as your laundry was concerned, but that was about the only good thing about it. But you have a place where you go to to do your laundry. No doubt you have a bedroom. That's a place that you go to sleep in. No doubt you have a bathroom. and Well, we'll leave that there. But what I'm saying is every activity in life has a place. And prayer is no different. Prayer ought to have, there ought to be a place that we go. Now let me remind you that when I say a place, I don't even necessarily mean in the sense of a tangible or geographical place, but I mean a set-aside time and routine where we go to get alone with God. Let me say it ought to be two things, and we see this in the Lord's example here. Number one, it ought to be a familiar place to us. Now again, that's not to say you can't go and if you're one of these crazy people that thinks hiking is an activity, go and hike through the mountains and make that your prayer life. God bless you if that's what you want to do. But what I'm saying is this, we ought to be familiar with the activity of prayer. 
The Bible says that Christ was wont to go to the Mount of Olives to pray. And I love the way that Luke says this. Verse number 40, it says when, this is in Luke's account, Luke 22, he says, and when he was at the place, the place, this was a common activity for the Lord Jesus to take his disciples and to retire to this place for rest and relaxation and to be recharged and yes, to pray and to spend time with his father. And so I think part of the reason we give the disciples a hard time, we all do it when we read the Bible, we always think, those low down scoundrels, how could they do that to Jesus? But the fact of the matter is, what was taking place on this evening, there was a lot of strange things that did occur, things they were not familiar with. But one of the things they were familiar with was this routine of going to the Garden of Gethsemane and praying. And so they did not realize, I believe, or recognize the weight and gravity of this moment for the very reason that it was a common occurrence. The Lord Jesus was familiar with this place. I was talking to someone the other day and we were talking about the topic of prayer and I made the comment to them and I've made it many times in the past that, you know, we focus so much on how we pray and what we pray and I think maybe we ought to focus more on the fact that we pray. There are things we ought to give ourselves to prayer about. Don't misunderstand me. And there are certain attitudes we ought to take in prayer. Don't misunderstand me about that. I do believe we can ask amiss that we may consume it upon our own lust. But I think for most of us, if we just make sure that we pray, then what we pray and how we pray, and let me go a step further and say why we pray, would all find the proper place if we just make sure that we pray. Make prayer a familiar thing. It was a familiar place, but let me notice this too. It was a further place. All of the the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that record this instance, they say it in different ways. In uh, Matthew's, or in Mark's account, where we're at tonight, verse 35, it says he went forward a little. In Matthew's account, it says he went a little further. In Luke's account, it says that he went a stone's throw away. But the idea behind it being this, that he got alone when he prayed. Now listen, I believe in corporate prayer. What I mean by that is God's people gathering together and pray. I, I believe in it. We're getting ready to have our all-night prayer meeting at the end of, of this uh, next month, at the end of May, beginning of June. I, I believe in corporate prayer, but I don't believe there's any kind of prayer that substitutes our personal private prayer life with the Lord. If we're not doing that, then we can pray over every uh, biscuit we ever eat. We can pray at every church service we're ever at. We can pray at every event that we ever attend. And that won't move anything a mile or an inch. But if we'll pray alone, you know, Christ said this, that when we pray, we'll not pray as the Pharisees out in public for everyone to hear. Now, I would say this, that most of us rarely ever pray for people to hear, but some of us are guilty of the bulk of our prayer life being that which is public. And Christ said, no, that's not how you ought to pray. You ought to get alone in your closet and pray. And your Father that hears you in secret, He'll reward you openly. You notice that word, in secret. The idea being we are alone. We have uh, pushed the world out and secluded ourselves into a place where we can spend time with our Father. Prayer definitely has a public ministry, but it ought to be, by and large, fundamentally a a private endeavor. It's a further place. A place where you can get away from everything else. And we ought to all have a time in our life and in our day every day where we get alone with the Lord. So we learn that prayer has a place in this passage. But then I can't help but notice that prayer has a price to it. Now, I don't mean we have to try to earn God's approval or attention. But I mean, if you're going to engage in prayer, it's going to cost you some things to do it. It's going to cost you, number one, your attention. 
real prayer requires undivided attention. And I know what I'm saying when I say that, because there's a lot of us that we spend time in prayer when we're doing other things. I don't think God's against that, but if that's what we're doing at the expense of focused prayer, I think that is a negative thing. We'll all have time in our life, in our day, in our routine, where we're praying and doing nothing but praying. I feel like a lot of times we want to have that active, engaged conversation with God throughout the day, and certainly we should, or to pray without ceasing. The only way we could function as human beings and pray without ceasing is if we make prayer an attitude and a way of life, and we pray and keep an open line of communication to God. But let us never think that that open line of communication invalidates the necessity to have time when we're focused in prayer, when we're talking to God and not being distracted by other things. It's going to take some time. It's going to take your attention. You're going to have to carve out a place in your day. How often, you've heard me say this before, but people will say things like, well, I've got to find time to do this. But the reality is, uh, there's 24 hours in a day and they're not hidden. 1,440 minutes in a day, they're not hidden. We, we have the time that we have. People will say, I need to make time to do that. But the reality is, try as you may, line up all of the collective forces of, of everyone in the world and you can't add a single second to the clock. Time is an immalleable thing and we cannot make time. And that leaves us with only one turn of phrase. We have to take time. We have to take it from something else and give it unto prayer. Prayer has a price and part of it is our attention. Number two, though, it requires our exertion. The Bible says in verse number 34 that the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. Luke's passage uh, tells us this in verse 44 of Luke 22. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Boy, that says a mountain right there. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. You know, a lot of us, what we want to do when we get in agony is we want to pray less. When the Lord was in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I'll tell you what I believe, and you might believe different about this, and when you're preaching, you can preach it how you want, but I don't believe that he was sweating blood. It's not what your Bible says. It says his, his sweat drops were, as it were, great drops of blood. In other words, he was sweating so profusely that he looked like he had been stabbed. It looked like he'd been shot. That he looked like he was already wearing a crown of thorns. Sweat was just pouring off him. Why? Because he was passionately engaged in the activity of prayer. By the way, you can't, you can't do that kind of praying with the TV on. You can't do that kind of praying going down the interstate. You can't do that kind of praying with a book in your hand, even the Bible. You can only pray that way when you pushed everything else aside and passionately, focusedly engaged in prayer. Prayer has a price if we're really going to do it the way that the Lord did. Then I want you to notice that prayer has a principle that drives it. In fact, I sort of know two here. Notice two here. I find it interesting that the Lord Jesus, He calls His Father Abba. Uh, We don't know how many times the Lord Jesus did this in His life, but we know it was not very often. And we know that recorded here, He uses this deeply personal name with His Father. We might use the term Papa or Daddy or or, or, or pop, you know, I don't know what you call your daddy, pop, pop, or soda pop, or what. But it, it's a name of endearment. It's a personal name. We could almost say it's a nickname that he uses, a term of endearment to his father. And could it be that one of the things the Lord Jesus is trying to convey to us is that our relationship with God is the premise of the activity of prayer. In other words, we pray because we know we have a father that loves us 
that hears us, that desires for us to know His will and to do His will. We pray not because we believe God is distant, but because we believe He's close. We pray not because we believe He's deaf, but because we believe He hears. And the Lord Jesus uses this personal term because He knows that His Father is listening and that His Father's heart reaches down to Him. In fact, you know, the Bible says in the book of Romans that it's by the Spirit of God that we use this exact same term. That through His Spirit we cry, Abba, Father. In other words, you and I, through the Spirit of God, are brought into the same circle of intimacy with our Heavenly Father that the Lord Jesus occupied. And the fact that we occupy that place by His grace and by His sacrifice for us and by His intercession tells me that we can pray and pray effectively and expect for God to hear because we have this deep relationship. I also find it interesting that it's here that He uses this term, Abba, because it reminds me that our recourse... The fact that prayer is our recourse is an important principle found here. All throughout his earthly ministry, he simply calls him father using a formal title. But the closer that he gets to the cross, the more familiar he gets with his father. And here on the very precipice of his death, he uses the most intimate and familiar title for his father. Reminds me of this. When things get harder, we shouldn't pull away. We should draw closer. And, and, you know, I will tell you, I'm not a fan of formality when it comes to, to praying. You won't hear me use a lot of these and thous and oh, oh most glorious, high and holy potentate when I pray. And part of the reason for that is because I believe a lot of prayer has been killed by that kind of, not the language, but the mentality that God is a distant God. I think we need to get more personal with God. Not irreverent, not trying to bring Him down to our level, but recognizing that in Christ Jesus we have been brought up to His level. We're seated together with Christ in heavenly places. And He is our Father. He's not just our God, He's our Father. And so the harder things get in life, that shouldn't pull you away from prayer. That should pull you closer in prayer. It shouldn't cause you to treat God with sort of a a false or a pseudo-formalism. But just like it would be in your life and mine, if we had troubles, if we had problems, if we had worries and concerns, and we called up our parent, and we needed some help, and we needed some wisdom, and we needed some guidance, wouldn't call him up and say, yes, is this Fred Weber? I'd call him up and I'd say, Dad, can I talk to you for a minute? I wouldn't call him up and, and call him by his social security number or his prison inmate number. He doesn't go by that much anymore. I'd call him and I'd, I'd talk to him in a very intimate way. Dad... I need some help. Dad, I need some guidance. I need some wisdom. That's the kind of prayer that God likes. Um, Imagine the arrogance of us thinking, God has gone to such great lengths to bring us into a deep, intimate relationship with Him. And then uh, imagine the silliness and arrogance of us to think that we need to then set up these faux barriers of formalism in our communication with Him. Hasn't He done enough to show us that He loves us and He wants to draw us close to Him? When things get hard, we shouldn't pull away we should draw closer. Look at verse number 36. This is the iconic verse from this instance, this this episode in Scripture. And it's said in a little bit different way in each of the Gospel accounts, but the overall spirit of it is contained in each of them. And I, I don't believe there's any errors. I believe they all coincide. I believe when you look at all three of them, you get a comprehensive understanding of exactly what the Lord said. But the Bible says that He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto Thee, Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. 
Listen, I'll go ahead and tell you there's bigger, bigger things going on in this verse than I'll ever be able to preach on. But I do recognize here in this simple request that prayer has a purpose. Prayer is not just a mere act of ceremonialism or ritualism. It's not an incantation. It's not abracadabra or open sesame. But it's a, it's a deep, intimate conversation with our Heavenly Father. And it is driven by a real, uh, meaningful purpose that needs to be affected in our lives. I see two things predominantly. Number one, prayer has the, the purpose to determine God's will. It's, Lord, all things are possible to Thee. In other words, what he's saying is, Father, I know that if you wanted to, you could take this cup right out of my hand. I wouldn't have to go to the cross. I wouldn't have to suffer. I know, Lord, that everything is possible to you. And therefore, I make my request known. Not that he might have his request executed, but that he might through that discern what God's desire is. In other words, what he's saying is this. I want to know that my will is in line with your will. I want to make sure, I want to, I want to learn and understand just exactly what you desire from me. Prayer, one of the great purposes of it is to discern and, and I, I hesitate to use this word, but maybe divine the will of God. To try to understand what God desires of us. Now his word is very clear about many, many things, but you and I both understand that there are plenty of issues of life upon which there is not clear scriptural direction that could apply in that distinct matter. Oftentimes, when you're trying to choose two different paths, neither of which are immoral or ungodly, but you're just trying to find the mind of God. So what do I do, preacher? The same thing you'd do if you were talking to an earthly father. You'd say, Dad, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? What do you desire out of my life? What should I do? Give me some direction. Give me some wisdom. Give me some guidance. I think very often, I'll say a word about this in a moment, but very often we get nervous, we get jumpy, We get impatient on God. But if we would recognize that prayer is about understanding what He desires of us, then I believe it would do a lot to calm our spirit when we pray. Because I'll tell you this, if I ask my dad what he wants from me, I don't just want an answer, I want the right answer. I've asked him because I want to know what he wants. I don't want to know what your dad wants or what somebody else's dad wants or what I would want if I was a dad. I want to know what my dad wants. I want to know what my father expects of me. And if that's our true desire as we enter into the prayer closet, then it ought to give us a serene, settled, steadfast patience that we're willing to say, you know, I'll wait until God makes it known to me. And here's why, because I believe this is the second design and great purpose of prayer, not only to determine God's will, but to deliver our will to Him, to subject our will under His, to find out what He wants, and then to do it, to put it very simply. The Lord Jesus makes this statement that is just pregnant with mystery. I I can't explain everything about it. But the fact that the Son of God, God the Son, God in the flesh, just as much God as God the Father, the Creator of the universe, the immaculate, invincible, eternal One, says, not what I will, but what Thou wilt. Understanding that never for even a moment, for even a glimpse throughout human history, was His will out of sync with His Father's will. Still He prays, not what I will, but what Thou wilt. What was He trying to do? Well, and I don't have time to go into all the theology of it, but I I believe He was doing several things. One, I believe He was leaving us an example. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that though He were a son, yet learned the obedience through the things which He suffered. Not saying that He was ever disobedient. 
but saying rather he went through the process of the subjecting of his will to the Father's will, of the appropriating of his position in in relation to his Father. Why? Because you and I are going to have to do that. Uh, His will was never out of sync with his Father's will, but guess what? Sometimes my will is. Sometimes your will is. And he being our example in all things, blazing the trail, walking the path before ere we had to trot it, he says, Lord... I don't want what I want. I want what you want. I want my will to be in complete subjection and submission to your will. I believe he did that leaving us an example that he might be a fit high priest. That we might know that he's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. That was tempted in all points like as we are. That he's able to succor them that are tempted. Because we know that even when it comes to a matter of, of, of deep meaning to us and importance to us. In which we have great desires and great wishes and great wants and great dreams. And we must subject those things under God's will. Often not understanding what God is doing. We can look to him knowing he has subjected His will to the Father. And He's able to intercede for us knowing that He knows exactly what we're going through. The purpose of prayer is not to bend God's will to ours, but to bend our will to His. It's not to grab a hold of God's will and wrestle it to be more to our liking, but it's an avenue and it is a a, 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 a tool, an opportunity, an exercise in God grabbing our will and wrestling it to His. In other words, if all prayer is to you is some way to get God to do things, then you have a very elementary understanding of what prayer is about. Prayer is not about you getting God to do things. Now, I believe prayer works. I believe it's effectual. I believe it availeth much. I believe it changes things. But I believe it only does so in as much as God can use that to change us and to make us more into the likeness of Christ. I'm not saying prayer doesn't change things. I'm saying before it changes anything else... And it will only change anything else in as much as it can change us. And that's the greater truth of what God's trying to do in our prayer life. He's trying to make us more like Jesus. Prayer has a principle. Then I want you to notice that prayer calls for persistence. Look at verse 41. The Bible says this, And he cometh the third time, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. The third time. He goes to him and he says, Stay awake, pray. Make sure you don't enter into temptation. He goes away and he prays. That's the first time. He comes back and he finds them asleep. He wakes them up and he rebukes them in love. He admonishes them. And he says, you better stay awake and pray. Not for me, but for you, so you don't enter into temptation. And he turns around and he goes and prays again. That's the second time. And then he, he, he comes back, finds them again. And he says... You need to wake up. You need to, you, you need to, uh, try to pray. You need to try to stay awake. And he goes back. When I say the third time, I mean the third time he went back to pray. He went back a third time. He had rebuked them, admonished them twice. Then the third time that he finds them after having prayed the third time, he comes back and he says, sleep on now. The reason I make that distinction is, is going to be plain to you here in a moment. Four times he went back to pray. Four times. Three times after which he had seen others give up in their prayer life. You know, I found this to be true, that in prayer, very rarely does the answer come at once. Didn't for the Lord Jesus. Didn't for the Apostle Paul. Said he besought the Lord thrice. Thrice. I see that in prayer, there's often a stalling of the answer. 
There can be a thousand reasons. The book of Daniel reveals to us that there are great and mighty spiritual forces and powers that are battling in a spiritual warfare and realm that often are moved and are shaped and are are bolstered or are brought into subjection by our prayers. And that often those beings withstand our prayers, try to fight against them. The angel told Daniel that 21 days ago when you prayed, your prayer was heard, but I was withstood by the prince of Persia, talking about very likely the angel that was combating on the behalf of that pagan kingdom. There can be a lot of reasons that your prayer, the answer doesn't come right away. But that doesn't mean that God didn't hear you pray. And it doesn't mean that God is unable to answer. God is doing things, not only in the answering, but often in the waiting period. That's why patience is so important in our prayer life. We've got to keep praying and keep praying. You say, when do I stop when God answers? He won't always tell you what you want to hear. He won't always give you the answer you anticipate. But just as there is a stalling of the answer, there is also a certainty of the answer. It will rarely come at once. But we can rest assured that if we'll continue to pray, the answer will come. It came in Paul's life. Finally, God spoke and he said, that's enough, Paul. My grace is sufficient for thee. It wasn't the answer Paul wanted, but it was just as real and certain as if it had been the answer Paul had wanted. I I think very often, again, we get nervous, we get impatient, we jump on God. And we do that because we're waiting for an answer. And we're not willing to wait until God gives us the answer. But prayer calls for persistence. Over and over again, Christ taught this principle. Just as the man, the the importunate friend that comes and he knocks on the door and he asks for bread because travelers have come and and barged in on him and and visitors have come. And the man says, I can't get up. The, The door's locked. Everyone's in bed. But the man just kept knocking and kept knocking and kept knocking. Christ said that the man will arise, not necessarily for his care for his friend, but because of the importune nature of the man's knocking. Because he just won't give up. He gave the same illustration about a widow woman that continues to call upon an unjust judge. And then he juxtaposes those beside what is the loving character of our Father. And he says, if even in an environment where there's no love, importunity wins the day. Imagine if there was love involved. It would tell me this, that love could be the only element that could stay the trembling, lurching, aching hand of God from intervening in your situation. In other words, if God's not answering, it's not because He doesn't care, it's because He does care. And He's trying to draw, just as He did the Lord in Gethsemane, like an olive in an olive press, He's trying to draw the sweetness out of your life, trying to draw the growth out of your life. And I'm saying there's just as much providence in the silence as there is in the answer. And there's just as much providence in the timing as there is in the testimony of a prayer answered. You see, the reality is this. Our prayer life, rarely, there will be things that we pray and say, God, do this, and He does it before the day is out. But that's unusual. Not because God can't, but because every time we come and pray, it's an opportunity for God to grow us and to develop us. Prayer calls for persistence. Look down at verse 38. The Bible says this, The Lord said to His disciples, Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. Then He says this, The Spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. Matthew says it this way, The Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. It reminds me of this, that prayer involves principalities. 
In other words, there's more going on in our prayer life than just the action and activity of our mind, than the, the words that we form, than the volition of our heart. I said it a moment ago, but there's great un, unseen powers moving when we pray. You know, you remember in the Old Testament, prophet of God prayed that God would open the eyes of His servant at the great vast armies on the hillside. When God pulled back the veil and let him for a moment see the spiritual reality that was existing around him, he looked on the hillside and he saw the whole hillside peopled with angels. The same is true today. God is working. There's great. God has great powerful beings affecting His will in the world around us. And the devil too has great powerful emissaries trying to combat the will and desire of God in this world. And when you pray, you are engaging in the hottest and most effective of, of the battles. You're engaging in the very heart of the warfare. And how dare we think that prayer, as powerful as it is, would not be attended both by God's help and by the devil's hindrance. Notice what our greatest enemy is here. Verse 38, he says, the flesh. The flesh is weak. The greatest enemy to your prayer life is not the uh, world system that will find culmination in the Antichrist leadership. The greatest enemy to your prayer life is not those that hate Christianity in the way of Christ. The greatest enemy to your prayer life is not the devil himself or the millions of, of imps and, and, and emissaries that he has. The greatest foe to your prayer life and mine is our flesh. That's our greatest enemy. Now, I'm not saying those others are not enemies. They are. But I find this, that if we can defeat the enemy closest, that's where your priorities lie, right? When you're on a battlefield and you're standing there and there's an enemy 20 foot from you, there's probably an enemy that's a quarter mile away, but you ain't thinking about him. You're thinking about the one closest because that's the one that's the most pressing danger. The same thing's true in your life and mine. The greatest enemy we have in our prayer life is our flesh. I see there's an enemy, but I also see in Luke's account that there's encouragement to be had. Because Luke says something that the other two don't tell us. That when Christ prayed and said, Father, if Thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but Thine be done. Verse 43, Luke tells us that there appeared an angel unto Him from heaven, strengthening Him. In other words, we're not alone in this prayer thing. God will strengthen us. He'll encourage us. He'll undergird us. He'll uplift us. He'll empower us in the activity of prayer. Why would we think God would empower us in every other Christian activity, spiritual endeavor, but not in prayer? Prayer being the most effectual and powerful of anything that we do. But often we wave the white flag before God ever has an opportunity to strengthen us. Often the moment that we resist unto any angst or agony, then we give up. But it was when he was in agony that he prayed more earnestly, and it was when he was in agony that the angel came and strengthened him. I'm telling you this, I ain't talking about you, I'm talking about me. There's lessons to be learned in here that I've never came near. I mean, we need to get serious about this thing of prayer. A lot of us, we're still in the kindergarten of prayer. When many years have passed, and it ought to be that we're in, in, in the higher uh, classes. We're in the advanced coursework. And sadly, many of us, and I, I'm, I'm holding my hand up, I'm confessing my faults before you. Sadly, many of us that ought to be in the advanced coursework, we're still trying to color inside the lines. These are deep truths that the Lord showed us in Gethsemane. And then finally, and I'm done, I can't help but see that prayer has some pitfalls. There, prayer is an activity that is fraught with certain dangers. 
I see two of them here. One, I see that one of the great prayer pitfalls, one of the great dangers in our prayer life is that if we won't stay faithful, we'll yield to the flesh's wooing. We'll do what our flesh wants instead of what the Lord wants. And it's always funny, man, when you commit to pray, that's when your schedule goes crazy. That's when all of a sudden you get sick. That's when all of a sudden you get weary, you get tired. It's funny, man, we can stay up till 5 a.m. watching something on the idiot box. But if you want to go to sleep at night, you just commit to prayer. The devil will make them eyelids heavy. And to, to yield, to give up in the activity of prayer before we've gotten an answer or before the Lord has made known His will to us. And I'm not listening. There's things, and I think this is true in Paul's life. When he says he prayed, he besought the Lord thrice. That means this, that Paul prayed, gave himself to a season of prayer about a matter, and then he took it off his prayer list. And then he put it back on. He did it again. Then he took it off. And then he put it back on. I'm saying this, that it doesn't mean that if you have something you need God's mind on, that you have to start praying tonight and not stop till you get an answer. Not eat and not sleep. But I am saying this, there, there is, there is a certain perspective that can only be gained through the sacrifice of, of not yielding to the flesh in our prayer life. And I'm saying just as we said there's a price to prayer, Sometimes for us to get effective in prayer, we're going to have to do without a little sleep. Sometimes we'll have to do without a meal or two in the area of fasting. Sometimes we'll have to do without some of those other activities and leisures that we have become so accustomed to. And to not be willing to give ourselves unto prayer is to yield to the flesh's wooing. I'll share this with you and I'm done. Look down at verse 41. We read this a moment ago. But I think sometimes we just read past this and we don't read it. I told you that he went and prayed four times. I believe that's important to recognize. Here's why. It says, He cometh the third time, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. See that little colon there? Right after it, it says, It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now, if I'm reading my Bible right, that little colon, there was a lot packed into it. If I'm reading right, what took place here is the Lord comes back and finds him asleep. And he says, sleep on now, take your rest, colon. And he turns and he goes back to his place of prayer. He engages again in prayer with his father. Evidently, when he comes back, he says it's enough. What's enough? He's not talking about their sleep. He's talking about his prayer. He's saying, I got my answer. And the answer is that the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. You know what I see here? Because they gave up on prayer, you know what they missed? They missed the answer. They were sleeping through it. I don't know what that answer looked like. I'll tell you this, that on more than one occasion, the voice of the Father spoke audibly from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son. And why at this most crucial moment in Christ's ministry... Would it be unthinkable that the voice of the Father maybe spoke from heaven again? Maybe God sent an an emissary of angels to deliver this answer. I don't know how God answered. And neither do you. And neither do I. And neither did they. Because when they should have been praying, they were sleeping. You know the great danger in not engaging faithfully in prayer is that we miss God's working. There's all kinds of things God's doing around us. But if we're not vigilant in prayer, we miss a lot of them. There's a lot of things that could be answered prayers, but we never prayed about them. 
And God in His grace and mercy, He continues to work. And it could have been something that strengthened our faith. Imagine, you know, Mark would have gotten his uh, gospel, the narrative of his gospel from Peter. But Peter couldn't give an answer here. All Peter could say is we fell asleep. And when we woke up, we saw the torches of Judas's men. We heard the clamor of their shields and their swords. And we saw the countenance of the Lord saying, now's the time. I've gotten my answer. We missed it because we went to sleep when we should have been actively engaged in spiritual warfare. The sad truth is this. We could miss a lot of things God has for us if we won't give ourselves to prayer. I wonder tonight maybe what of these principles needs to be present in our prayer life. I'll tell you right now, there's things that need to be in my prayer life that are at the Garden of Gethsemane. And I wonder if we are serious enough about prayer that we'll get serious in our prayer walk, that we'll commit ourselves to these things. And you know how it starts? It starts with prayer. With saying, Lord, help me in these areas.